Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 12th of January, 2022, and we have been talking about avirulence. We've been speaking about a specific operon in streptococcus that invade the oral cavity. We were talking about the regulation of biofilm last time. And the next chapter in this discussion is going to be antimicrobial or antibacterial resistance associated with avirulence. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Okay, so what is antibiotic resistance? Well, first of all, it simply means that the overuse of prescribed antibiotic has in, has generated a, an increase in pathogenic bacterial resistance to the drugs that are used to control it. It's very simple. Now, the underlying mechanisms that make those bacteria resistant are far from simple. But again, we can generalize and say that when you apply an antibiotic to a bacterial system, say a biofilm in the oral cavity or in the gut, what you end up doing is killing not only potentially pathogenic bacteria that are susceptible to that particular class of antibiotic, but also the commensals which means that you're corrupting the biofilm and therefore the infection court. And so that's one thing that's definitely not a good thing because the biofilm takes some bit of time to generate that allows for a mucosal surface, for example, in the oral cavity to be resistant to the introduction of potentially very uh, virulent pathogenic bacteria. And when you corrupt that entire system, that means that you're opening up the possibility of reorganizing the biofilm in ways that could be detrimental to the host. Okay. So antibiotic resistance is unfortunately increasing worldwide and it's become a global human health hazard. We've been observing this ever since antibiotics were first generated commercially and made um, publicly available. Uh, but we've seen a tremendous increase since really the end of um, World War II, when a lot of penicillin was used on the battlefield, which absolutely um, transformed the um, prognosis of many of the soldiers that were wounded in battle from being um, the prognosis being one of probably just simply dying from their injuries, their wounds, or surviving and moving on, all within the matter of maybe a couple of days. So penicillin was definitely considered a wonder drug. And um, I could spend some time talking about penicillin beta-lactams in general, or any other class of antibiotics, because I've done this in uh, graduate courses. I've taught um, antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance, as well as the biochemistry, and really just the chemistry of antibiotics, the mode of action, and their movement through the body and all that. 
But right now, I'm going to lock it back into the safe very less discussion because that's what we're doing. So these two component systems actually play a very specific role in antibiotic resistance. They do so by regulating some of the genes that modify either the antibiotic itself or the target that the antibiotic normally would be uh, localized to. That would be where, where those two possibilities can be mutated by selection that means using an antibiotic, particularly if it's used prophylactically uh, or inappropriately. And the first thing that you see with bacterial resistance is very straightforward. The bacteria that become resistant are able to use efflux pumps to simply just pump the antibiotic out of the cell. And this is extremely common. But when we think about a deeper level, and we were talking before about competence, that is picking up DNA, um, there are virulence genes that include antibiotic resistance genes that can be picked up by plasma DNA. So when this occurs, you get a bacteria that is uh, competent because of that two-component system we've been talking about, the CIRH pathway, right? Regulation of that system by the CIRH and the corruption of it can lead to enhanced competence, which means enhanced uptake of foreign DNA. And you might consider, well, why would foreign DNA that results in coding for antibiotic resistance, let's say detoxification of the antibiotic itself or the efflux pump pathway, or perhaps even sequestration of the antibiotic or some other kind of uh, breakdown, de uh, uh, degradation pathway. Well, it's because if the bacterial cell that is being selected for antibiotic resistance, that is, it's been in um, some kind of isolated environment where antibiotic is being used, if those cells are competent and they're able to um, pick up DNA and the DNA gets recombined into the genome of the bacteria, and then that selection pressure is applied, that is the antibiotic is applied, any of the DNA that would code for transcript protein and then protein that could, again, detoxify or push out via an efflux pump, the antibiotic is going to be selected for, give a selected advantage, because all the other bacterial cells would die or become morbid enough that they couldn't um, go through a cell division. See how that works. So selection pressure can drive the competence-mediated incorporation of foreign DNA that codes for antibiotic resistance simply by applying antibiotic to the environment. Okay? For example, in the human gut uh, and the human circulation or, of course, in the oral cavity. So that's why competence and biofilm are directly linked to antibiotic resistance. And we've said, again, that the CIRH regulates competence in biofilm. Therefore, it's going to be intimately involved in any antibiotic resistance that strep may be able to um, master. Now, I want to uh, give you, again, a general understanding of this before we go into the details of the CIRH pathway and antibiotic resistance. Um, this has been studied for a long time. And 
obviously AR or um, antimicrobial resistance, which is another term, but we're just talking about AR antibiotic resistance, is a circumvention of the mechanism by which an antibiotic functions to kill the bacteria. So infections that are caused by antibiotic-resistant pathogens may not have been pathogens before the antibiotic-resistant virulence has been picked up, by, by, again, by being competent, picking up DNA and selecting for it. Anyways, what can happen is that when you have an antibiotic-resistant pathogen and it's now in the infection court, it can be extremely difficult to remove it because you're going to experience a great deal in the host morbidity and mortality. So what has been generated worldwide is an epidemiological surveillance network, particularly in the U.S., but also in Europe and Asia. And there are many of these scattered around that have been, that people report to, medical doctors and hospitals, for example. One of them is known as CSER, and that is the Central Asia and Eastern European Surveillance of antimicrobial resistance, spelled just like Caesar's name. And this, of course, is a reservoir for new information that documents antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Now, why is it specifically describing Central Asia and Eastern European? It's because antibiotic resistance has certain hotspots worldwide, and that happens to be a hotspot. Locations where a lot of antibiotic is used, it's given away either freely or dispensed freely, and it's used, again, prophylactically. And this is what can lead then to, again, changing the infection court, understand, to generate pathogens as a, a, via molecular revolution, essentially, that now control the infection court or the biofilm. Okay? So yeah, hopefully you can understand where this, where selection plays such a significant role, right? So our CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, that is, also um, reports on this. And the most recent reports came out in 2017, and it suggested, the CDC, that in the U.S. alone, some 2 million people have been clearly infected with AR bacteria, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and some 23,000 died that year simply from uh, having these antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which, of course, are then going to be resistant to the drugs that are thrown at, all the antimicrobials. <laughs> now, worldwide, you probably have somewhere in the order of 700,000 to 850,000 deaths attributed just to AR. And if you spread this out and look at the geometric expansion of antibiotic resistance. And we're running out of antibiotics, I should bring up also right now. We're running out of new classes of antibiotics because we keep on trying to throw more um, specific antibiotics so that we can um, alter this selection pressure by hopefully changing the target of the antibiotic in a multivariant way and multivalent way so that we can escape from the spiraling explosion of antibiotic resistance. But estimates are, if, we're, if we go on the same trajectory we are as of 2017, when this report was, was finished, 
and there'll be another one coming out, I think, in 2020, uh, from 2021, we could have as many as 10 million deaths by 2050 just from antibiotic resistance. Now, of course, these are projections, computer projections. So we certainly hope we're not going to be anywhere near that because we're only we're still under probably 1 million. Maybe we're at about a 1 million number uh, for 2021. Now, infections due to antimicrobial resistant bacteria um, are caused by multi-drug resistant Acinetobacter baumannii, Klebsiella pneumoniae, and of course, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. We've all heard of this, certainly in the biomedical field, also known as MRSA or MRSA. So again, you got three different bacteria we're talking about. Acinetobacter baumannii, Klebsiella pneumoniae, and methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. And these are the major ones that come up in the hospital. And they, of course, are going to result in longer duration of hospitalization, uh, tremendous burden on the family and on the patient, obviously. But there's a national health care burden that's generated by this, that's national in the United States, but worldwide. So antimicrobial resistance is associated with widespread use and misuse of antibiotics. This is why many physicians in the United States and also in Western Europe are rather reluctant to simply dispense antibiotic, even when patients come in with strep throat. Now, the sad part about it is, and I have personal experience with this because I raised four children, I still have one at home, is that Often when a child has uh, a strep throat and they have all the symptoms and signs uh, and you bring them into a clinic, they don't actually do a swab to test to see if there is strep A or some other kind of strep uh, that's inducing this. Now, there are some other strep uh, genera that can induce the same uh, a species that is that can induce the strep throat phenomena. They don't even bother to do um, a swab and then do, of course, a culturing. They simply assume by visual observation and then by knowing what's going on in that community, if strep is moving through, say, the schools, they just go ahead and um, hand out antibiotic. And the antibiotic can be beta-lactam-based or it can be um, any number of different mechanisms. But chances are <coughs> those bacteria, if they are there, are going to become increasingly resistant to the antibiotic. And the other thing is that sometimes antibiotic isn't necessary because the natural immunity to these bacteria can usually clear the infection without more than a day or two away from school. But many, many, many parents want to see their kids given an antibiotic. And this is what's been going on now ever since I was a child, which was a really long time ago. Okay. So, it means that the health industry, that is the people in the front lines, the physician's assistants, the nurses, and of course the uh, resident doctors that are meeting people in the clinics have to ha have to decide whether or not they're going to use antibiotic. And most often they will when they know there's a bacterial infection. Of course, that's appropriate therapy, right? It's appropriate pharmacotherapy because you have, an you have a 
bacteria. The bacteria can be very dangerous for small children, for everyone, really. And we have antibiotics, which will just potently kill uh, those pathogenic bacteria. The, there's very little uh, reason to avoid using the antibiotic. But still, there's a trade-off. And uh, unfortunately, that trade-off is most often falling on the side of still continuing to dispense the antimicrobial. And again, with good intentions and perfectly understandable. But that is indeed, though, driving this molecular evolution of antibiotic resistance. I just wanted to get that out there. Now, back to the CIARH, right? So in S. pneumoniae, CIARH, that locus, was reported to be involved in the cefotaxamine susceptibility. And the CIAHC306 mutant that uh, was isolated was isolated because it was resistant to the antibiotic cefotaxamine. Okay. Now, currently, it's known that the CIARH also participates, excuse me, in cycloserine, bacitracin, vagomycin, and indeed penicillin resistance, that same genetic locus. Now, you know why? Because that locus is controlling biofilm. And I just mentioned to you that locus is controlling competency, right? So you can see how they're linked. So when you do a cDNA microarray, it shows that vancomycin can induce the expression of the CIARH in S. pneumoniae, okay? So even this is well demonstrated in a particular vancomycin-sensitive strain known as Tiger 4, but not in a strain called Tupelo, which is a vanc-tolerant strain, okay? So the vanc-sensitive strain, you induce the expression of CIARH, but not in the Tupelo strain, which is a vanc-tolerant strain. That doesn't mean it's resistant. It means that vancomycin uh, can be added and the bacteria still grows, okay? So that's an interesting feature, right? Because in other words, it's titratable. So the CIARH in the active state, when it's activated, remember that whole process we went through now three times, results also, unfortunately, in resistance to cycloserine and all these other antibiotics. While the bacteria with the CIRH in its inactivated state are hypersusceptible to those different classes of antibiotics. So both the DNA microRNAs, a DNA microarrays, excuse me, and the and the messenger RNA transcriptomes has shown that the CIRH is induced when pneumoniae strains are exposed to many of these antibiotics, but particularly it's been proven in penicillin exposure. Now, a whole lot less is understood um, about how the CIRH contributes to antibiotic resistance in the oral streptococci. So remember to colonize and thrive on teeth in the oral cavity in humans, S. mutans, which is the karyogenic streptococcus in the oral cavity that causes dental caries, 
to thrive on teeth, S-mutans expresses a, a whole suite of genes that actually allow for the resistance to many antibacterial pharmaceuticals, including non-pharmaceuticals, but naturally occurring cationic antimicrobial peptides. Now, these are known as AMPs, okay, antimicrobial peptides. So, uh, interestingly, alpha-MSH, that peptide that comes from the POMC locus, is an antimicrobial peptide. So, so alpha-MSH has been studied in this bacterial system. I'm not going to talk about it right now, but I'm just telling you that I know this from the literature. So CIRH regulates the tachoic acid biosynthesis operon, because it regulates many, because remember, it's a transcriptional activator, called DLT. And when it does this, it allows for it to resist AMPs in the S-mutans biofilm cell lineages. So let me repeat that. CIRH regulates the tachoic acid biosynthetic, biosynthetic operon DLT to resist antimicrobial peptides in S-mutans biofilms. In addition to that, that is, to participating in the antibiotic resistance, um, the CIRH also plays a very significant role in the regulation of stress tolerance. And by that, I mean oxidative or reactive oxygen stress. And indeed, also in acid tolerance, because remember, S-mutans will acidify the oral cavity. Now, in the absence of CIAR, remember, that's the response factor that picks up that transphosphorylated phosphate on aspartic acid residue, S. pneumoniae is more sensitive to oxidative stress. Now, that's curious, right? Because that's usually the factor that gets transphosphorylated. So this phenomenon gets restored by complementation with a high-temperature requirement A protein. That's called an HTRA. And all of that when you follow through the genetics, the molecular genetics of it, gives us good evidence, at least, that CIARH and that whole COM-D TCS, remember the TCS is two component systems, all participate in acid tolerance. And that, of course, contributes to pneumococcus surviving in acidic environments, for example, in pneumocytes, where pneumococcus can be, of course, very, very dangerous and, in fact, deadly, okay? So you're starting to see why this is a really, it's a very significant um, biomedical issue, but you also understand it's completely about bacterial evolution, and bacterial evolution in particular subcellular domains in the host, and the host we're talking about is human. Okay. So here's an antibiotic that you don't hear much about in general literature and people don't normally get prescribed it because it's found in antibacterial soaps and cleaning product, products. This is called triclosan. So this is just an example of what goes on. So if you inhibit the enoyl acyl carrier protein reductase, now that's in the type 2 fatty acid synthase pathway, okay, part of the novel fatty acid synthesis is an enzyme called enolacp reductase, okay? 
So bacteria, because they're prokaryotic, have a type 2 FAS, fatty acid synthase, not a type 1 like the host does, humans do, for example. So one of the earlier antibacterial therapies have been to target, of course, prokaryotic pathways. And one particular prokaryotic pathway is the type 2 fatty acid synthase. So triclosan, this drug, again, commonly found in antibacterial soaps and cleaning products, will interfere with the bacterial synthesis of fatty acids. You won't be able to get through fatty acid synthesis if you block that enol ACP reductase. So it's effective against triclosan, such bacteria as lactobacillus. However, studying this and following this through ever since these antibiotic soaps have been on the market, and I can tell you they weren't on the market uh, in the last century to any great degree until the 1990s. But since then, of course, an explosion in many households where everybody used to have antibiotic soaps, not in my household. I quit using it way back in the 1980s because I was following this literature. Yeah, way back then because I was teaching biochemistry and I was looking at antibiotic resistance. And I had been learning about triclosan because it's a, actually it's a drug that can be used as an inhibitor of fatty acid synthesis. And that's useful in not just bacterial uh, metabolism, but also in higher plant metabolism, which is what I was studying as a postdoc at the time. Now, let's go back to a paper published in Infection and Immunity. This talks about Staph aureus. Now, Staph aureus is, of course, associated with the skin and in, in its skin infections and also other soft tissue infections, okay? Very significant, Staph aureus. I told you that Staph aureus is one of these bacteria that picks up antibiotic resistance, right? The, um, we uh, Hopefully, I've, I've just described to you how that occurs, and so hopefully you're on the page. So Staph aureus associated with skin and soft tissue infections, and the severity of that can range from very minor skin uh, corruption such as folliculitis, cellulitis, or impetigo, to far more severe, particularly in the hospital setting, when you have a surgical site infection, that's known as an SSI. So S. aureus, which is always on your skin, is linked to many hospital-associated SSIs. And that can lead to, yeah, bacteremia, endocarditis, and even after certain epigenetic modifications, long-term autoimmune inflammatory disease after a successful surgery because of S. aureus, okay? So the treatment of SSIs, which has to happen all the time in the hospital, has led to antibiotic resistance, okay? Dealing with surgical side infections yields antibiotic resistance among many hospital strains of S. aureus. And that yields then, finally, a high prevalence of infections among surgical patients and a concomitant reduction in efficacy of antibiotics in a very large population of people who have had surgeries. So there's much more I want to say about this. And I'm going to limit it because I think I'm going to try to really deal with this whole avirulence discussion. Remember, I'm going through these regulatory pathway systems, regulatory components, um, starting in the alphabet, letter A, 
And I'm realizing now that antibiotic resistance should have its own quorum, right? Pun intended. Um, and so I'm going to not belabor this too much. I might give you one more lecture of how this relates to virulence and then avirulence when you lose antibiotic resistance. And this does occur naturally. And we know this because we keep strains of bacteria, uh, for example, in stab culture, but also non minus 80 freezers that go way back. And because of that, we can determine the evolution of antibiotic resistance genes by looking at bacteria that have been preserved for a long period of time. And I can talk a little bit about that with sulfadiazine resistance. And maybe I will bring that up next because I used to use that as an antibiotic resistance marker in some of the research I had in my laboratory at one time. So it might be an interesting story to cover. Anyways, I'm going to stop here because I've got only about a minute left. Let you know that this was Authentic Biochemistry uh, podcast productions, and you were listening to Dr. Daniel Guerra. That's me. And today was the 12th of January, 2022. And uh, after that, I will leave you with bye for now. <laughs>